Welcome to the reading of the Des Moines Register for Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. I'm your reader, Dennis May. Things are changing very quickly, and Iris wants to make sure we provide our listeners with as much information as we can. In order to do that, we've changed our program schedule completely. This schedule will air statewide on all platforms until further notice. We will also include information about resources in your community during each paper. You'll still hear your Des Moines Register each day at 9 a.m., 6 p.m., and 1 a.m. Please listen closely to the following changes for all other newspapers. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. until noon. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m., seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m., seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. Recordings of all newspapers will be available on our podcast page. Just go to iowaradioreading.org, click Listen Now, then click Listen to Iris Podcasts. The papers are organized by region. Each paper will be available for seven days. As things continue to change, we will announce scheduled changes each hour at 56 minutes past the hour going forward. Keep yourself safe, and thank you for listening. Now let's take a look at today's weather. Today will bring mostly cloudy skies along with a shower. Passing showers may occur across the area tonight, otherwise it will be mainly clear, partly sunny with a spotty shower on Wednesday. The forecast for Des Moines today calls for a high of 53 degrees, a low of 41, mostly cloudy with a shower, clear and a moonlit night tonight. On Wednesday, partly sunny and a shower with a high of 61 and a low of 43. And on Thursday, a high of 62, a low of 40, again mostly cloudy and a shower. Across the area today, mostly cloudy with a shower, winds east-northeast 7 to 14 miles per hour. And Wednesday, partial sunshine with showers in spots, winds north 7 to 14 miles per hour. Our sunrise today was at 6.06 a.m. and will set at 8.17 p.m. The moonrise today was 6.18 p.m. and will set today at 5.22 a.m. Now let's take a look at the first story in today's Des Moines Register. Businesses navigate newly reopened state, but many may be left on the sidelines without customers. From Anamosa, long lines of motorcycles streamed into this eastern Iowa town over the weekend, and it felt a little like old times to the shop owners on Main Street who reopened for business. Customers drifted into the clever feather to browse handmade gifts and check out newest offerings at the White Picket Consignment Shop. McAdles had a parking lot half full of cars for the first time since Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds ordered restaurants to close their dining rooms on March 17th in an attempt to slow the spread of the coronavirus pandemic. That directive changed Friday when Reynolds began allowing restaurants in 77 counties that have seen minimal cases of the COVID-19 to start waiting on customers in-house at no more than 50% capacity. The evenings really got busy, McGottle's manager, Joby Gangstead, said Monday. The same applied to retail stores. But no one expects normalcy to return soon for businesses that specialize in face-to-face service. What Iowa experienced last weekend was just a first step, 
said Jessica Dunker, president of the Iowa Restaurant Association. She conducted an informal survey of restaurants in the seven seven counties where dine-in service was allowed and found that only 25% of them planned to take advantage of that opportunity immediately. Another 20% indicated they would see how their peers fared and possibly reopen this weekend. She was happy to hear that restaurants that were open reported brisk business. For the rest of Iowa's 6,300 eating and drinking establishments, it may not be feasible to make a profit with capacities cut in half. Others need more time to get deliveries of food, supplies, and protective equipment for their workers, Dunker said. At McGottles, which had laid off the bulk of its staff of 42 workers, Gangstead said she has already begun bringing back her servers, dishwashers, and hosts, and hopes to be back at full employment soon. Provided the numbers don't go back up with people getting sick, I think it will be good, Gangston said. We have all of our precautions in place, so hopefully that will protect everyone that works here, as well as our customers. Anamosa, where McGottles does its business, is a town of 5,500 in Jones County, where the state reported 24 COVID-19 cases and no deaths as of Monday. I think we're all very glad to be open and see our customers again, and to be able to provide our employees a chance to come back to work, Gangstead said. Although restaurants can reopen, some customers may still stay home, Dunker said. I think it's going to take everyone a while to feel comfortable going out. We didn't do anything to lose people's trust, but we still have to take the steps to gain their confidence, which is a subtle difference. Those steps include placing dining tables at least six feet apart, having plenty of sanitizer on hand, and making sure restaurant workers are wearing masks. And even that may not be enough. It's hard to eat a meal at a restaurant with a mask on your face, noted Peter Orizem, a professor of economics at Iowa State University. The parts of the economy that are face-to-face -face retail, I think, is going to be in for a long stretch before people are going to feel comfortable going to these places again. I think more restaurants are going to shift toward the pizza model, that is, delivery and pickup only. You're certainly going to see businesses fail as a result of this pandemic. A recent study by the Wharton School of Business predicted Iowa could lose 12% of its economy during the coronavirus shutdown. Orzem said taking a gradual approach to reopening businesses is logical and needed. But he also noted that 77 counties that were allowed to take the reopening steps account for just 41% of Iowa's economic output. The bigger test will come when Reynolds allows business openings in the 22 other counties, which include the state's largest, being Polk. There are reasons why you want to allow the economy to progress in areas where it looks like the trade-off between the disease and the economy are less severe, he said. Iowa isn't the first state to try to find a formula for safely reopening the economy. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp gave parts of his state's business community the green light on April 24th, and the biggest malls in the metro Atlanta area were set to reopen Monday. Kemp, like Reynolds, said he trusts residents to take proper safety precautions. I'm not dismissing a second wave of COVID-19 by any means. We continue to prepare for that, Kemp, who, like Reynolds, is a Republican, said Monday. I think we're getting to the point in our country where the ill effects of people being out of work and people being on the verge of losing their business, losing their home, you know, it's hard to shelter in place if you don't have a place to shelter in, and that is what's happening in America right now, back in Anamosa. Furman Fernandez is down to four employees at La Hacienda, one of the two Mexican restaurants in town. Business has been slow while he's been limited to offering curbside pickup. Anamosa usually draws a sizable crowd of tourists this time of year to visit its three museums, the National Motorcycle Museum next door to Macados, 
the Anamosa State Penitentiary Museum, and the Grant Wood Art Gallery. But museums still are not allowed to open. Fernandez is going to reopen his dining room Tuesday on Cinco de Mayo, typically among his busiest days. He'll offer special on tacos. Mother's Day is also coming up Sunday, and that weekend draws about the largest crowds to American restaurants annually. Like other restaurant owners in rural Iowa, Fernandez is counting on the timing being perfect for a welcome uptick in business. I think that will help, Fernandez said, of being able to see customers again at his five-year-old restaurant. At least, I hope so. On Monday, Governor Kim Reynolds announced 534 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state. Four additional deaths have been reported. That brings a total confirmed to 9,703. Total deaths, 188. Total recovered, 3,486. And total tested, 57,161. This is from the Iowa Department of Public Health. Visitors flock to Iowa State Parks despite virus concerns. Iowans have been crowding into state parks on recent weekends to bask in spring sunshine despite warnings that interaction with other people could spread the virus. The state parks have remained open to daytime visitors even though their campgrounds, restrooms, and other facilities are closed for the time being to help prevent people from gathering. But in spite of those efforts and warnings to all to maintain social distancing, people have been gathering. A Des Moines woman posted a video on Facebook on Saturday showing scores of visitors at Ledges State Park, less than an hour's drive northwest of Des Moines. As a line of cars crawled along the park's main road, groups of children splashed in a creek. Few visitors were wearing face masks. Why is almost no one social distancing? The woman's son can be heard saying on the video as the family drives through the park. I am wondering the same thing, the woman answers. She said later that because of the crowds, the family left the park without getting out of their car. Department of Natural Resource spokesman Alex Murphy confirmed that recent weekends have been busy at the parks. Recently, many of our parks, like Ledges, have seen an influx of visitors, especially with the nice spring weather we have been experiencing, Murphy wrote in an email to the Des Moines Register. Murphy said the state parks remain open as a viable option to spend time in the fresh air and open space to help with mental health during the quarantine. Although the parks and trails have large volumes of visitors during this time, DNR staff have not issued any citations for disobeying the physical distancing guidelines and would only do so as a last resort effort, Murphy wrote. Instead, the presence of staff and law enforcement throughout the parks remind and educate visitors to continue physical distancing while enjoying some of Iowa's most beautiful public places. He said afternoons generally have been the busiest in state parks. His agency encourages people to come in the morning or evening when areas are less crowded. Megan Serenovas, an infectious disease physician from Fort Dodge, said she is troubled by the ledges video, but she wasn't surprised. The physician watched the video at the register's request. She said the video appears to show people from different households mingling together without taking precautions such as wearing face masks. All of those are huge red flags, she said. It's the impact of everybody pretending we're back to normal. Saranabas, who also works as a public health researcher, said Ledges is a beautiful park and she wouldn't want to see it closed. She agrees that outdoor activity can be a balm for people who have been cooped up under public health restrictions. We do want people to get out and exercise. It's wonderful if people can do it safely, she said. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has said she has faith that Iowans will act responsibly as she moves to gradually reopen parts of the state 
that have reported relatively few illnesses. The governor recently lifted some restrictions last week in 77 counties, including Boone County, where Ledger State Park is located. For example, restaurants in all but 22 Iowa counties were permitted to reopen their sit-down dining areas at 50% capacity. The reality is that we can't stop the virus, the governor wrote in a Des Moines Register essay over the weekend. It will remain in our communities until a vaccine is available. We must live to learn with that, without letting it govern our lives. Current rules don't directly limit activity at state parks, but Saranovas said Reynolds' move sent the message that it's okay for Iowans to resume everyday activities, even as the virus continues to build strength in the state. The woman who posted the ledges video said the hundreds of cars at the park Saturday included some with license plates from Polk County, where restrictions have not been lifted because the coronavirus has been confirmed in a relatively large number of residents. The woman told the register she didn't want her name published because she has taken flack online for raising the issue of crowding at the park. Body of Missing Des Moines Teen Found Saturday in River A body pulled from the Des Moines River this weekend is that of teenager missing for more than three months, police say. The Polk County Medical Examiner's Office identified the remains of those of Abdullah Abdi Sharif of Des Moines. Patrol officers responded at about 3.10 p.m. Saturday to the Des Moines River and Prospect Park on reports of a body in the water, according to a news release from the Des Moines Police Department. A person kayaking in the stretch of the river on the city's north side called police, said Sergeant Paul Prizek. Cerise's relatives are grieving and declined to comment publicly, family friend Emily Levine told a register reporter Monday. Within two weeks after he was reported missing, a reward was offered for information leading to Cerise's whereabouts. Groups of volunteers gathered to help look for the Des Moines Roosevelt High School student at least twice. Cerise's mother, Paduma Ahmed, told the register a month after her son went missing, I'm feeling pain. Every time I think about him, I feel panic. Cherie's family hired Stephanie Kinney, a private investigator, to help find Cherie. I'm not going to give up until we have answers, Kinney said while searching February 29th. Responding officers Saturday saw what appeared to be a person submerged near the north bank of the river, the press release states. There were no traumatic injuries observed during an autopsy, according to police, and a cause of death has not been determined. It is unclear how long Sharif's body was in the water or where exactly he went in. The 18-year-old was last seen on video surveillance walking out of the Target store where he worked on Morhay Road around 5.30 p.m. on January 17th. He was also captured on video walking through the nearby AT&T parking lot. Cell Towers last pinged his cell phone on January 17th near a bridge along Euclid Avenue over the Des Moines River, Herzig said Monday. The phone was shut off shortly after he went missing. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources assisted Des Moines Fire Department water rescue personnel with recovery of the body. Please join us in expressing condolences to Abdi's families and friends, Des Moines Police wrote in a Facebook post. Thank you to all who supported the family, donated their time during search parties and fundraisers, and assisted Des Moines Police Department with the investigation. Those interested in helping the family can donate at a GoFundMe.com. West Des Moines Paramedic Tests Positive for COVID-19 A West Des Moines paramedic has tested positive for COVID-19, the respiratory disease caused by the novel coronavirus. The paramedic was tested April 28th at a test Iowa site according to West Des Moines Emergency Medical Services Assistant Chief David Edgar. The test came back positive Sunday, five days later, Edgar said. 
The paramedic was asymptomatic and continued to work until receiving the test results. West Des Moines paramedics began wearing goggles and 95 masks and gloves while dealing with all patients in mid-April. Officials believe the protective gear prevented other patients and colleagues from being exposed to the coronavirus by the paramedic. West Des Moines paramedics and EMT staff are regularly screened for fevers and other symptoms. If a person works more than 12 hours, they must be screened again, Edgar said. During non-emergency calls, firefighters and police officers are staying outside of homes to limit exposure to people, and paramedics and EMT staff are being encouraged to wash their uniforms at work each day. The paramedic who tested positive was removed from duty and will remain off for 10 days from the test date as long as he or she remains symptom-free. Most West Des Moines paramedics, including the person who tested positive, aren't assigned to one station. They often work out of multiple locations each day, Edgar said. Meatpackers cautiously reopen plants amid coronavirus fears. This is from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. A South Dakota pork processing plant took its first steps toward reopening Monday after being shuttered for more than two weeks because of a coronavirus outbreak that infected more than 800 employees. As two departments opened at the Smithfield Foods plant in Sioux Falls, employees filed through a tent where they were screened for fever and other signs of COVID-19. Some said they felt the measures Smithfield has taken would protect them from another virus outbreak, while others were not confident that infections could be halted in a crowded plant. Lydia Toby, who works in the ground-seasoned pork department, said she was kind of worried as she entered the plant before 6 a.m. for her first shift in over two weeks. The company met employees in her department Friday and explained it had installed dividers on the production line and would require everyone to wear masks. I think it's going to be okay, she said. In the wake of an executive order from President Donald Trump ordering meat plants to remain open, Arkansas-based Tyson Foods was also resuming limited production Monday at its pork plant in Logansport, Indiana, where nearly 900 employees tested positive. And the JBS pork plant in Worthington, Minnesota, an hour east of Smithfield, South Dakota plant, planned to partially reopen on Wednesday. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden on Monday called meatpacking plants, along with nursing homes, the most dangerous places there are right now. He called for greater protections for meatpacking workers. They designate them as essential workers and then treat them as disposable, Biden said. In a teleconference town hall with the League of United Latin American Citizens, Biden also noted that their employees may include workers who are in the country illegally and are afraid to seek medical help. Virginia-based Smithfield was offering COVID-19 testing to all employees and their family members, according to a text message sent to employees and seen by the Associated Press. The message told employees to report to a local high school to be tested. It wasn't clear if testing was required before employees could return, and Smithfield didn't immediately respond to questions. About 250 employees were told to report back to work on Monday, according to the union that represents them. The plan employs about 3,700 workers and produces roughly 5% of the nation's pork. Salaheldin Ahmad, who works at the department, that was not yet reopened, said he was called in by plant management to look at changes in the plant. They fixed a lot of things, he said, describing how workers would be spread apart where possible. According to a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report released Friday, more than 4,900 workers at meat and poultry processing facilities have been diagnosed with the coronavirus, including 20 who have died. Some states didn't provide data, so the actual count is believed to be higher. 
The true number of COVID-19 infections is also thought to be far higher than the number of confirmed cases because many people haven't been tested and studies suggest people can be infected without feeling sick. The CDC researchers said plant workers may be at risk for a number of reasons, including difficulties with physical distancing and hygiene and crowded living and transportation conditions. They suggested enhanced disinfection and that workers get regular screening for the virus, more space for co-workers, and training materials in their native languages. Many meatpacking employees are immigrants. A CDC report on Smithfield outbreak found that employees there spoke about 40 different languages. The United Food and Commercial Workers Union, which represents roughly 80% of beef and pork workers and 33% of poultry workers nationwide, has called for stricter measures than the CDC recommendations, including mandating that workers be spaced six feet apart on production lines. It has appealed to governors for help enforcing worker safety rules. The union also wants to get rid of waivers that allow some plants to operate at faster speeds. As plants warily reopen or others operate at diminished capacity with many workers staying home, sick or in fear, it's unclear Trump's order will guarantee an unbroken supply of meat. Tyson Foods reported record meat sales in the first quarter but warned investors Monday that it faces continued production slowdowns. Company officials said it expected lower productivity in the short term until local infection rates begin to decrease. Zach Madhog, a maintenance employee at Tyson's pork plant in Waterloo, Iowa, said he will feel comfortable returning to work when the plant reopens, even as he fears that one of his closest colleagues may soon die from the coronavirus. Jose Alea, 44, is in critical condition on a ventilator at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics after catching the virus a month ago. Madhog has been calling Alea, who is medically paralyzed but may still be able to hear, encouraging him to keep fighting. Hogg tested positive himself for the coronavirus on April 20th. He said he had mild symptoms and expects to return to work later this week at the plant, which suspended production on April 22nd. Menhog said Tyson has made key safety changes, such as vowing to enforce rather than just encourage social distancing and providing employees with masks instead of telling them to bring their own. That's a huge step, he said. The people returning, I see them having a better chance of not getting it at all. Des Moines Public Schools to set hearing for stadium project. Des Moines Public Schools plan to build a $19.5 million stadium complex on the Drake University campus will go before the school board later this month. The school board on Tuesday is scheduled to set a May 19th public hearing on the project. The 4,000-seat stadium would host football and soccer games for the district's high schools and middle schools. The Drake men's and women's soccer teams would also play there. Des Moines Public Schools announced in November that it would partner with Drake University on the project immediately east of the Knapp Center on the north side of Forest Avenue. The school district's share of construction costs is $15 million, which would be paid using the Secure and Advanced Vision for Education Fund, or SAVE, sales tax revenue dedicated to capital improvements. The district takes in $33 million to $34 million annually in sales tax revenue. Drake would fund the remaining $4.5 million to build the stadium through donations and be responsible for maintaining the facility. The Des Moines School Board will vote Tuesday to create a committee to review athletic facilities and provide recommendations for future investments with an eye on district-wide equity. Our school district is home to thousands of students who participate in athletics and we need to do more to make sure they have access to quality facilities while maximizing our limited resources in public education. Kristen Delgardell, school board chairman, said in a news release. 
The committee will include district staff, student, and parent representatives from each school, community representatives appointed by the school board, and representatives from the Des Moines Parks and Recreation Department and the Taxpayer Association of Central Iowa. The committee will submit a report to the school board in October. The Des Moines School Board will meet at 6 p.m. Tuesday online. 32,000 bananas, IV to hold giveaway on South Side. At a time when stuck-at-home Americans are going bananas for banana bread, IV will distribute more than 32,000 bananas for free on Des Moines South Side Tuesday afternoon. Courtesy of Dole Food Company, the giveaway is meant to assist Iowans who have been financially impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Each attendee will receive two bunches of organic Dole bananas. In total, hy anticipates giving away 13,440 pounds of fruit, just over 6.5 tons to about 2,600 families. CNN reported that banana bread has been the most searched-for recipe across the country over the last month. It's quick comfort food and a thrifty use for overripe bananas that may be the byproduct of pandemic-related hoarding. The High V Dole event begins at 4 p.m. Tuesday. It will last until 6 p.m. or until the bananas are gone. To pick up bananas, enter the Southridge Mall parking lot from Southeast 14th Street. There will be a contact-free system for drivers to pick up the fruit. Walk-ups will not be permitted. Hashtag Des Moines Strong is a series of stories that showcases how our communities are coming together to support businesses and one another during the coronavirus pandemic. We're looking for your stories about individual good deeds, businesses that are transforming their operations to continue serving and employing Iowans, and charities that are bridging the gaps. And Reynolds pledges to clear up test backlog. Iowa's backlog of coronavirus test results should be cleared up by the end of the day, Governor Kim Reynolds said Monday. I know waiting for test results is difficult, and I'm sorry for any concern that this may have caused, Reynolds said at a news conference Monday. I want to again reassure Iowans that this is a short-term issue as we ramp up testing and processing. The governor acknowledged Friday that a backlog in the data entry process at the State Hygienic Laboratory had delayed coronavirus results for Iowans who had been tested through the Test Iowa program. Reynolds had initially pledged that those Iowans would have their coronavirus results by the end of the weekend. She said thousands of tests have been processed during that time, but the backlog wasn't completely clear by Monday morning, she said. The Iowa Department of Public Health reported on Monday an additional 534 positive tests for coronavirus for a total of 9,703 positive cases in Iowa. An additional four people also died, bringing the total deaths related to COVID-19, the disease caused by the virus, to 188. The state recently signed a $26 million no-bid contract with several Utah-based companies for a program dubbed Test Iowa. The program opened the first test site in Des Moines on April 25th, a site in Waterloo on Wednesday, and Reynolds said Monday a third site had opened in Sioux City. Last week, Reynolds estimated more than 800 people had been tested through the program, a figure that has since grown. The testing equipment purchased for the program is still being validated by staff at the State Hygienic Laboratory, which Reynolds said is a standard process. She has retained faith in the program amid questions about testing results in Utah. A spokesperson for the University of Iowa, which houses the State Hygienic Laboratory, did not immediately return a request for comment Monday afternoon regarding the status of the backlog or how long it will take to test Iowa equipment to be validated. State Hygienic Laboratory Director Michael Pendella is not going to run equipment if he doesn't have confidence in the equipment and its performance. 
Sarah Reisetter, Deputy Director of the Iowa Department of Public Health, said, so there'd be no reason to separate out Test Iowa results separate from any other test results because the Test Iowa equipment is going through the exact same kind of validation that all the other tests that are happening have done. Reynolds did not detail the scope of the backlog or what percentage of it was attributed to Test Iowa. Mega Van Halen, a dental hygienist who lives in Pleasant Hill, was tested at the first Test Iowa Des Moines site on April 25th. She is still waiting for results. She shared documentation with the Register that shows she was among the first tested under the program. Van Halen, age 40, said she was optimistic about the program's potential when Reynolds announced it on April 21st. Now she's skeptical. You can test all you want. If you're not getting those results out, then that testing doesn't mean anything, she said. Others have received results through the program. On Monday, City of West Des Moines officials confirmed one of its paramedics tested positive for coronavirus after getting tested at Test Iowa site. The paramedic, who was tested April 28th, continued to work until receiving test results five days later. On Friday, two health care workers told the Register that they were waiting for COVID-19 results after also being tested through Test Iowa on April 25th. As of Monday afternoon, both workers told the Register that they were still awaiting their results. We're going to continue to watch the virus's activity on a daily basis, Reynolds said on Monday. With the testing capacity that we have, the assessment, and then with case investigation and the contact tracing, it really does allow us to look at some of the spikes in cases, not only from a state but county to community or even down to a zip code, so that we can start to monitor that and address it in a fairly rapid way, so that we can hopefully prevent seeing a significant spike. As the positive cases of the virus in Iowa creep close to 10,000, Reynolds argued she was balancing the behavioral health and livelihood of Iowans with concerns of the pandemic. Iowans are meant to work and we need to open back up, but we have to do it in a safe and responsible manner, Reynolds said. This isn't political and it shouldn't be for anybody and I don't believe it is. It's about trying to do the right thing in an unprecedented time to really manage the health and well-being of Iowans and their livelihood. Casey's Partnership to Fight Rural Food Insecurity Casey's General Stores is committing to feeding children with far more than just its signature pizza. The 16-state convenience store chain, based in Ankeny, announced Monday a partnership with nonprofit organization Feeding America to donate food and money to help hungry children in communities where it does business. The collaboration includes $150,000 cash donation by Casey's to 52 food banks across the region. More than $20,000 went to food banks in Iowa, said Casey's spokesperson Katie Petru. Over the course of the year-long partnership, Casey's plans to support the nonprofit through in-store donation campaigns, food donations, and volunteering. An April report from Feeding America, which runs more than 200 food banks, predicts that the financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic could lead to an all-time high of childhood food insecurity, with as many as 18 million children in the U.S. lacking reliable access to nutritious meals. The convenience store chain also donated nearly 40,000 pounds of food to the Food Bank of Iowa and the Terre Haute Catholic Charities in April. Joining forces with Feeding America is a natural reflection of how we live our life and our purpose by being here for good, said Casey's CEO Darren Rebellas in the Monday release. At Casey's, we are at the heart of each community we serve, and our communities face a great need for food. Ankeny mother arrested on child endangerment suspicions. An Ankeny woman was arrested on suspicions of child endangerment Sunday following reports of injuries in March. Brianna Carol Henderson, age 28, was arrested around 3 a.m. Sunday and released later that morning. 
Henderson was charged with child endangerment through bodily injury, a Class D felony, in Iowa. Police issued a warrant for the mother on April 3rd following the report that Henderson's non-mobile infant child had scratches and bruises on his body on March 10th. The injuries were caused by non-accidental trauma, according to court documents. A no-contact order is in place with the child and is now in place for Henderson. Her initial hearing is scheduled for 8 a.m. July 2nd at the Polk County Criminal Courts Building. And from Iowa City, Iowa City Police announced arrest in April shooting death. Police in Iowa City have announced an arrest in the April shooting death of a man. Rohe Antonio Rosa, age 22 of Iowa City, was arrested Monday in the April 20th death of a 21-year-old Cajun Winters, police said in a news release. Rosa has been charged with first-degree murder in Winters' shooting death. It was the second arrest for the case. Police earlier arrested Jordan Hogan, age 21, on a charge of obstruction, saying he helped a suspect in the homicide investigation avoid arrest. Police continue to search for a 44-year-old man they say is a person of interest in the case. And here's a fact check. Stay-at-home orders bad for health? The claim, governor's orders to stay indoors are detrimental to health. People should go outside because sunlight kills COVID-19. As cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. surpass 1 million, states across the country are starting to open up and ease stay-at-home orders. Experts, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, have warned against lifting social distancing guidelines prematurely, but economic pressure has pushed some states and businesses to reopen. The specifics of stay-at-home orders vary by state, but throughout the country, businesses, parks, and other public spaces have closed, while other outdoor activities, such as hiking, have been discouraged in order to prevent overcrowding. And people have used social media to vent as they grow restless. One Facebook post encouraged people to throw the mask away, get out of your homes, go wherever you can to breathe in the fresh air, get yourself some sunlight. The post also said coronavirus thrives indoors and criticized governors for forcing people to stay in indoor environments when sunlight kills the coronavirus. So why were social distancing guidelines and closures implemented? Scientists have known that the SARS-CoV thrives in indoor environments since 2010, probably earlier, writes the author of the Facebook post. So what are our governors doing, trying to force everyone to stay in their homes? The post cites a 2010 article about findings from the American Society of Microbiology. A study found the SARS coronavirus, or COVID, may survive on surfaces with temperatures and humidity levels that are similar to those found indoors. However, the SARS-CoV virus is not the same as COVID-19. The SARS-CoV virus and COVID-19 are both caused by coronaviruses, but there are several differences between the two, including symptom variation and transmission and severity of the viruses. The new coronavirus appears to spread more easily than SARS and is mainly transmitted between people through respiratory droplets, not through contact with surfaces. Because the virus's most common form of transmission is human-to-human, -human, the six-foot social distancing guidelines have been implemented to combat the spread. So the question is asked, are people allowed to go outdoors under stay-at-home orders? The stay-at-home orders and social distancing guidelines vary by state, but residents in all 50 states are allowed to leave their homes to grocery shop, exercise, and patronize essential businesses. In some places, playgrounds, parks, and beaches have closed. Public outdoor spaces have closed to stop people overcrowding and spreading the virus. However, officials and researchers have encouraged people to spend time outdoors exercising while practicing social distancing. 
So the question is asked, do sunlight and humidity kill the coronavirus? USA Today previously has fact-checked claims about coronavirus and sunlight. This particular Facebook post references a quote from a Newsweek article that talks about a study analyzing solar light's potential to kill the novel coronavirus. William Bryan, the science and technology advisor to the Secretary of Homeland Security, discussed the promising findings of the study, which has not been made public and is waiting for external evaluation at an April 23 news briefing. Ryan said the study's potentially positive findings are not an excuse to ignore existing guidelines. It would be irresponsible for us to say that we feel that summer is just going to totally kill the virus, and then if it's a free-for-all and that the people ignore those guidelines, he said. Additionally, neither the World Health Organization or the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention list sunlight or UV light as a preventative measure to combat the coronavirus. So we rate this claim as false based on our research. The Post uses an academic study to support its claim, but the study was about SARS-CoV, which is a different coronavirus and cannot accurately be compared to COVID-19. HERTA extends free service through May. For the continued safety of riders and drivers, Heart of Iowa Regional Transit Agency will remain free through May 31st. The publicly supported transportation system asks riders to use HERTA only for essential and critical needs during the COVID-19 pandemic. Riders are also requested to be mindful of drivers and other passengers and follow these guidelines. Wear a face covering over your nose and mouth while on the bus. Sit further away, keeping a safe distance from the driver and other passengers. Do not touch drivers or other passengers. If using a mobility device, turn your head away from the driver and don't talk to them while they are securing your device. These measures are strictly for the safety of our riders and drivers, HERDA Executive Director Julia Costello said. HERDA will continue to monitor the COVID-19 situation, follow CDC guidelines, and make adjustments as needed. Right now, we need everyone to do their part to help stop the spread of the new coronavirus and keep themselves and others who must use her to services as safe as possible. And Randy Peterson, columnist, writes, A flight attendant's view from front lines. Flying looked cool to Taylor Huency back when the 2013 Valley High School graduate traded in her hospital scrubs for the urge to help people in a different way. She was young and still is. Like all young people, the world back then was a buffet of job opportunities. For some reason, flight attendant popped into her mind. She talked to close friends about it. She discussed it during casual conversations with families of patients for whom she cared while working on the cancer floor at the Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines. Wincy made the decision. She attended flight attendant school and liked it. Someone liked her, too, because she's been flying for four years. And even in these trying times of the global pandemic, she's still liking it. I'm not really worried about my health, said Wincy, who flew as recently as last week. I take care of myself. I don't have any plans to stop working. I like helping people. A flight attendant for Republic Airways, this soon-to-be 25-year-old, is on another kind of front lines. Instead of working with cancer patients as a certified nursing assistant like she used to a while back, she's making sure passengers have safe flights. Instead of comforting patients and their families, she's helping passengers feel safe while flying during an epidemic for which there's still no cure. I guess you can say I just like doing good things for people, Huency said. Even in these times, I like what I'm doing. That's the neat part about what she does. She wears a mask. She's as meticulous in the air as she was while caring for patients. 
We're all cleaning our stations before, during, and after flight, she said. The company did a good job providing us with masks, sanitizers, wipes, gloves, everything we need to keep the passengers and ourselves safe. Just recently, some airlines started requiring passengers to also wear masks. We're happy to see airlines taking action to require masks or face coverings for passengers, crew, and other frontline employees. Sarah Nelson, the head of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, said in a story recently published by Politico. We continue to call on the federal government, whether it be DOT, FAA, HHS, CDC, to require masks for crew, frontline employees, and all passengers. Flight attendants are essential workers. They're not working as much these days as in pre-coronavirus days. Flight schedules have been altered. Planes are mostly less than full, yet they're flying. Spreading people out on the airplane has become a big thing, Quincy said. I've really noticed that the last few weeks, people are every other role, and if they're uncomfortable, we're able to make them feel comfortable. Planes, for the most part, haven't been full, so there's not really been a problem. Once he overnighted in places like Belize, Panama, Martinique, the Bahamas, Canada, Mexico, and a lot of other cool places during pre-pandemic flying. More recently, she overnighted in Chicago, Charleston, South Carolina, and Memphis, Tennessee. She mostly hangs in the hotel. We're the only ones in the hotel, she said of the flight crews. It's crazy. It's not crazy enough to consider a job change. I still love it, she said. It's a different kind of helping, but it's still helping people. How Kent State Shootings Impacted the U.S. Fifty years since four students killed by National Guard. The first display you see upon entering Gallery 1 at the May 4 Visitor Center at Kent State University expresses a concept initially advanced by famed playwright Arthur Miller. May 4, 1970 was the day the war came home. And nothing brought the Vietnam War home more dramatically than a photograph taken that day by a Kent State photojournalism major. You probably already know which photo we're talking about. Young Mary Ann Vicio, kneeling next to the dead body of student Jeffrey Miller, her hands turned upward in despair, a look of horror on her face. It was the face that launched a thousand protests. It was the face that mirrored the nation's shock that American soldiers would fire into a crowd of unarmed students. It was the face that may, more than anything else, have turned middle America against the Vietnam War. The photo, taken by John Philo, who won a Pulitzer Prize for it, flooded the media. Front page of the New York Times on May 5th. A while later, the covers of Newsweek, Time and Life. Reproduced at one time or another by almost every general interest publication across the continent. Perhaps the only photo from the era that rivaled it, in terms of both usage and impact, was the blood-curdling 1968 image of South Vietnamese General Yin Nguyen Long shooting a prisoner in the side of the head. Kent State Emeritus Professor Jerry Lewis, age 82, was in the crowd that horrible sunny day in May, serving as a faculty marshal. He was standing a mere 20 yards from Sandy Schurer, one of the four students killed. When he heard the shots, Lewis, an Army veteran, dove behind a bush. A sociologist who has written extensively about the tragedy, Lewis compares the drama of the Mary Vecchio photograph to nothing less than Michelangelo's renowned religious sculpture, the Pieta, which portrays the Virgin Mary cradling the dead body of Jesus. Both the Vecchio photo and the photos of the 500-year-old marble sculpture are framed as pyramids with the top being the heads of two Marys while the bases are outdoor scenes with the earth for the Pieta and tarmac of Kent State University parking lot for Jeffrey Miller, writes Lewis. The Mary Vecchio picture shows the shock and horror of the shootings at Kent State by the look on Mary's face. 
Next, her upraised hands, as in prayer, capture the sorrow of the moment. Michelangelo's Mary expresses her grief over the death of her son, not in her face, but with her left hand. Sitting in his office at the Hudson residence, he shares with his wife of sixty years, Diane. Lewis says he believes the photo's impact was felt internationally. The Mary Vecchio photo just grabs you and says, pay attention. But the story of May 4th also was told in words, thousands of words, many of them bitterly critical. Life magazine's article called the shooting a senseless and brutal murder at point-blank range. Newsweek's story was headlined, My God, They're Killing Us, and contained this summary. The guard insisted that the men fired as they were about to be overrun by the students. But if the troops were so closely surrounded, how was it that nobody closer than 75 feet away was hit? And if the rocks and bricks presented such overwhelming danger, how did the troops avoid even one injury serious enough to require a hospital treatment? Time magazine wrote, it took 13 terrifying seconds last week to convert the traditionally conformist campus into a blood-stained symbol of the rising student rebellion against the Nixon administration and the war in Southeast Asia. When National Guardsmen fired indiscriminately into a crowd of unarmed civilians, killing four students, the bullets wounded the nation. Within days, an estimated four million students went on strike, shutting down hundreds of colleges and universities. Five days after the shooting, 100,000 people descended on the Capitol to protest the war. On May 18th, one of the era's most popular bands, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, recorded a song called Ohio, which hit number 14 on the Billboard chart. Tin Soldiers and Nixon coming. We're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming. Four dead in Ohio. Even the historically conservative Wall Street Journal was unloading on President Richard Nixon a month after the shooting, saying his administration has not seemed especially concerned about the dangers inherent in the situation to the traditions of individual liberty. At Jeffrey Miller's funeral in New York City, attended by almost 5,000 people, famed pediatrician and anti-war activist Dr. Benjamin Spock said the killings may do more to end the war in Vietnam than all the rest of us have been able to do. Across the nation, peace signs were as ambiguous as today's smiley face emojis. Gallup polls conducted in 1970 showed that 55% of the public believed it was a mistake to send troops to Vietnam. At the same time, however, a powerful backlash was growing against college protests. In many quarters, Nixon was able to sell the concept that outside agitators were, who were the enemies of the state were responsible for most campus unrest. His approval rating remained relatively high in the wake of May 4th, and two years later he clobbered his pacifist opponent, George McGovern, in the presidential election. Nixon's followers became known as the Silent Majority, a phrase he had used in 1969 televised speech in which he claimed a majority of the population declined to speak out publicly, but believed in him and his secret plan to end the long, unpopular war. The considerable public divide that predated May 4th grew vastly wider immediately after the shots were fired. Many folks jumped on the fact that the girl in the famous photo was not a Kent State student, but a 14-year-old runaway from Florida, seemingly confirming Nixon's claims. But as Professor Lewis points out, every person killed or wounded by the National Guard, as well as every person later indicted for criminal activities that weekend, was directly tied to the university either as a registered student or a faculty member. Nixon himself realized the gravity of Kent State and the role he played in it. On May 1st, the day after he sent troops into Cambodia, winding the war he claimed to be winding down, he was leaving the Pentagon when he said, You see these bombs, you know, blowing up the campuses? 
Listen, the boys that are on the college campuses today are the luckiest people in the world, going to the greatest universities, and here they are burning up the books, storming around about this issue invading Cambodia. Then out there in Southeast Asia, we have kids who are just doing their duty. They stand tall and they are proud, and we have to stand in to back them up. Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, secretly kept a detailed diary of his interactions with the president that was published by Haldeman's wife shortly after his death in 1994. Haldeman made this entry the day of the shootings. Nixon is very disturbed, afraid his decision set it off. Issued condolence statement, then kept after me all the rest of the day for more facts. Hoping rioters had provoked the shooting, but no real evidence they did. Obviously realizes, but won't openly admit, his bums remark very harmful. Ohio Governor Jim Rhodes was at at least as culpable in fanning the flames. He arrived on campus May 3rd and in a news conference attributed campus violence to students who were, quote, worse than the brown shirts and the communist element and also the night riders and the vigilantes. They are the worst type of people that we harbor in America, end quote. Perhaps the best insight into Nixon's general outlook on Kent State was revealed just last year by journalist Bob Woodward, who was speaking on campus on the 49th anniversary. A researcher going through the collection of secret Oval Office tapes archived at the University of Virginia discovered a portion where Nixon and Haldeman were discussing the Attica prison riot, which left 29 inmates dead. Nixon said, You know what I think? This might have one hell of a salutary effect. You know what stops them? Kill a few. Haldeman said, Sure. Nixon said, Remember Kent State? Didn't it have a hell of an effect? It certainly did. It also had a fatal effect on Nixon's career. In his 1978 book, The Ends of Power, Haldeman wrote that Kent State marked a turning point for Nixon, the beginning of a downward slide toward Watergate. Those 13 seconds of gunfire 50 years ago changed the course of American history. And from Primgar, family remembers life of bullied Iowa teen. If he had gone the two- or four-year college route, Kenneth Weishun Jr. would be out of school and quite possibly either a policeman or a hairstylist in New York City. Prior to high school, Weishun, known primarily as KJ, energetically talked about heading in both those career directions, according to his mother, Jeannie Chambers, and sister, Kayla Weishun. If he could have gotten out of this area, he would have blossomed, Kayla told the Sioux City Journal. New York City, that's where he wanted to be. He was so kind and loving, and accepting of everybody. He didn't like to see people left out or not included. I just think if he was still here today, he would still be that person, just amplified. I think that would be reflected in the work that he would be doing and how he would be living his life. Kayla, age 24, a student who lives in Omaha, joined Jeannie at the kitchen table and reminiscing about KJ. They described him as a young man who liked being active outside around town playing soccer, creating projects in art class, and as extremely handsome with lots of friends who were girls. He moved to attend South O'Brien in seventh grade. Less than three years later, KJ took his own life at age 14 after what family members called an onslaught of bullying in 2012. By June of that year, officials could not find sufficient evidence to prosecute anyone for specific criminal acts against Weishan, the O'Brien County Sheriff's Office said in a statement. There is a shadow box of items devoted to his life in the South O'Brien Secondary School in Polina, in an area commemorating other students who have died. Still, Kayla remains unhappy that school officials didn't offer to have the funeral, held eight years ago today, at school. 
Kayla said the abuse heaped on her brother wasn't necessarily because he was a relative newcomer to South O'Brien. She said it was because of a distinct anti-gay mentality which was unleashed in person and digitally once KJ shared that he was a homosexual. It was when he came out as openly gay on Facebook that's when a lot of the issues came out. He wouldn't get up and go to school, or he would just sleep a lot, Kayla said. Before that, Facebook post during his freshman year, KJ told his mother and stepfather he was gay. We only knew for a month before he wound up dying, Jenny said. She had previously picked up on his sexual orientation and said she encouraged KJ to wait a while before sharing his coming out on social media, not because of embarrassment, but because the reaction could be stronger than he might imagine. Jeannie's mind had gone to the incident involving Matthew Shepard, a University of Wyoming gay student who was beaten, tortured, and left to die near Laramie on the night of October 6, 1998. But K.J. countered, quote, I'm tired of holding it in, and I don't care what people say, end quote, Kayla recounted. It turns out Jeannie's assessment of the derogatory response by some South O'Brien students was apt especially for what she said involved a group of about five boys in her sophomore class, one grade above K.J. A lot of people in his class didn't care. We're still friends with him, Kayla said. We had an interesting group of boys in my class who were always bullying people and being mean. I later found out, as I got older, a lot of them were dealing with things in their own homes, so it was their outlet to do that in school. In the hallway, Kayla said, they would keep coughing queer under their breath as K.J. walked by. She heard that happen and called out to one high school student, Really? You have that big of a problem with it? And he goes, Well, being gay is a sin. It is the area here. Everyone is very, very religious. That was what kept getting brought up. Oh, you're going to go to hell, because it is in the Bible. In small towns, your reputation can really get destroyed, Kayla said. Teachers began standing in the hallways after someone complained and addressed bullying at the school assembly, Kayla said but that didn't stop the bullies. The mother and sister said things turned worse when the taunting moved into cyberbullying. Kayla said someone created an online hate page against gay people and sent online invitations to all of KJ's friends, which he mistook as support for the page. Additionally, a slew of anonymous voicemails came to KJ's cell phone. Some of those things you would never say to a person's face, Kayla said. The woman said South O'Brien officials in an administrative team led by Superintendent Dan Moore and Principal Bill Bohr did some digging to ferret out the bullying, but it proved ineffective. Jeannie said she wasn't invited to one meeting with parents of some of the teens reportedly involved in the bullying. On April 14, 2012, K.J. reached his breaking point. He never left a note or anything, Kayla said. His death certificate stated that he passed at 10 p.m. by asphyxiation due to hanging. He had gone out to the family garage. It wasn't attached to our house and closed the garage door and then proceeded to hang himself from one of the rafter beams with an old corded dog leash. Iowa's anti-bullying law was hailed as one of the best in the country when it passed the General Assembly in 2007. It required school administrators to track and categorize instances of bullying so officials could see if they have particular problems in one area. The 2012-2013 school year, the year after Weishin killed himself, marked the first time the state revamped the bullying data collection and reporting process since the anti-bullying law took effect. Overall, the report showed school districts reported 5,224 alleged bullying or harassment incidents. Nate Monson, director of Iowa Safe Schools, said the number of total reported founded incidents was 1,316 in the 2018-19 school year, 
which he said doesn't match the reality for how much bullying is going on. South of Bryan and many districts reported a total of zero for that year. Frankly, the state of Iowa has completely failed at data reporting, Monson said. There are no real requirements for districts to report their bullying incidents, and many districts report no incidents at all, which does nothing to help alleviate the issue of bullying. The reason why accurate reporting is critical is that it allows a school district and a community to address the problem head-on. Monson said LGBTQ youth are one of the top populations targeted for bullying in Iowa schools. Superintendent Dan Moore did not respond to interview requests to talk about how South O'Brien anti-bullying practices have played out in the years since Weishin's death. In a prior journal article in 2012, Moore said school administrators dealt with the only incident they knew about involving Weishin, adding that school staff and counselors spoke with parents and students involved. Said Moore, We did address the issue. Obviously, we had no idea that we'd have an end result like this or what was going on outside of here. Additionally, Moore at that time said his goal was to find out how high school officials could make more students get the policy's message that bullying isn't acceptable. Kayla says she hopes people remember not only her brother, but that school officials and students should be embracing anti-bullying actions. However, she's not hopeful. And that does it for the first hour of the Register on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Up next, we'll give a shout-out to all our listeners who are celebrating a birthday today. I'm your reader, Dennis May. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.